The reading uh, tonight is from Luke, the 12th chapter. Find it here. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who has set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And so then he he told him a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. As a kid, my mom had an in-home daycare. I was surrounded by what my family called the babysitting kids. I was the same age as most of them. Actually, I was part of the older kids, which being the wee youngest member of my family made me so very happy to be at the top of at least one pecking order. There was usually about six of us, Rachel and Ryan from up on the hill, Laura from two houses down, Stacy and Angie, who are not so distant cousins of mine, and Johnny, who lived one town over, plus the two youngest Miller boys from next door would come to play most days. And these were my people, the babysitting kids, for better and for worse. One day, the older kids, we woke up early from our naps and were slowly shuffling out to find our places on the couch to watch Scooby-Doo. Soon after we all settled in, my mom starts to pass out afternoon snack. And I don't know what it is about brightly colored Tupperware bowls that made chunky peanut butter on saltines and apple slices look so good, but those afternoon snacks felt as if a feast were being placed in our hands. And somehow my mom fixed all the snacks and passed them out before she realizes Johnny and Stacy hadn't woken up yet, and she was out of snacks. Well, that particular snack, anyway. And right on cue, Johnny stumbles out from the bedroom and takes his place on the couch. My mom tries to offer him oranges and peanut butter instead, or oranges and peanut butter toast. But Johnny wants exactly what we are having, and he isn't afraid to verbalize this injustice of food distribution. He verbalizes it loudly and with much stomping and pacing. My mom from the kitchen tells us to share what we have with Johnny and then adds, things taste better when you share. (laughs) 
and we all just look at each other. I turn to Laura and say, you heard her, share. And Laura turns to me and says, nuh-uh, she's your mom, she's talking to you. Rachel whines that Johnny makes a better door than a window, and Ryan nudges Johnny aside, not so gently with his foot. Angie, still half asleep, says and does nothing. But Johnny, Johnny is looking really mad in his steel-toed cowboy boots. And luckily for Stacy, she is still sleeping, or Johnny would have kicked her out of frustration. Johnny liked to kick shins, especially Stacy's shins. But instead of kicking, he starts crying. At this point, my mom comes in from the kitchen, grabs a saltine sandwich and an apple slice from each one of our bowls, and then puts them all into Johnny's bowl. He ends up having way more than any of us had to begin with. But the thing was, once my mom told Johnny to stop his crying and eat, that's what he did. That's, a, that's what we all did. While those meddling kids and their dogs solved mysteries, we ate and laughed and began to lean into one another, making room for Stacy. One huddled, sleepy mess of kids crammed together on the couch. Life never felt so good. I have really loved the Gospel of Luke for years now. I love the idea that the whole story is a journey where the kingdom of God is revealed through the uninvited guests of society. The kingdom is seen present in the people on the fringe, the outcasts, the forgotten and the untouchables. Jesus is on a journey from birth to ascension, making known in physical terms God's salvation. And all these little events build a larger world of God coming into creation to seek and save that which was lost. It's almost as if Jesus is on a quest to complete a goal, a goal to die and rise again. That is his mission, redeem the world. In Christ's quest for the cross, a rhythm appears. Christ with the crowds, Christ with the disciples. Christ with the crowds, Christ with the disciples. All the while showing interest in both the communities he is in and the individuals he meets. Even in the crowds, he focuses on addressing one, maybe two individuals. The beginning of the parable of the rich farmer is one example of such an interaction. It marks a halfway point in the book of Luke and is a series of healings and teachings making the kingdom of God known. In the text for today, we find Jesus is ministering in Judea. There is a crowd of thousands following him, trampling on one another to get a piece of the Jesus pie. Jesus is talking about the kingdom and how God cares so much for the sparrows. Not one of them is forgotten. Even more so, every hair on our heads is numbered. So don't be afraid. If God cares for the sparrows, God cares for you. Do not be afraid. We are worth more than sparrows. Jesus is interrupted in his teaching by a demand. Someone in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now normally, such a demand would be made to a judge in the courts not a teacher, and Jesus explains this to the man. Jesus goes on to tell the man in the crowd a parable of a rich farmer who has to tear down his old barns in order to build bigger ones, to contain an immensely large harvest. The farmer thinks he will have an easy life for himself from this harvest, but then dies in the night. 
On first glance, this looks like a pretty easy parable to interpret. The meaning is even laid out in the beginning and the end of the parable. It begins with, watch out, be on guard against all types of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And ends with, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The reading of the parable of the rich farmer that I have heard many times in sermons is that saving up for yourself and not for God is bad. You can take your wealth with you when you die, so give it away, preferably in the collection plate. Do not store up wealth or treasures. Where your treasures are, there your heart is also. And if you end up being another version of the rich farmer and keep your wealth to yourself, well, you're going to get what you deserve. God's going to kill you. I mean, really, this parable seems to have no controversy. It seems pretty stable and predictable. Jesus shares the meaning of the story right at the beginning, tells the story, and then follows it up with a moral conclusion. The reading seems really obvious, and it appears as if no interpretation is even needed. But if we look at the parable as a reference to the kingdom of God, our reading of the text deepens. To more thoroughly understand this passage, let's talk a little bit about the interrupting man's relationship with his brother where it sits in the Luke's Gospel, and then about parables in general, and this parable specifically. Throughout Luke, we see money as a temptation to seek out prestige and security apart from God. And the interrupting man wanting his inheritance has fallen into such a temptation. It is yet another example of rivalry, which is a form of greed. We have heard and read about so many examples of rivalry this summer, Any rivalry really is a form of self-interest, a desire for power or privilege over someone else. We have seen this with Mary and Martha, the disciples among themselves, the disciples with the towns they enter, the Pharisees with Jesus, and we will see it in the parable of the prodigal son. This issue of blessing and inheritance can be seen as early as Cain and Abel, or Jacob and Esau, and some might argue that Adam and Eve eating of the fruit was a rivalry with God. Back to first century Palestine, it was a general rule that the eldest son received double the inheritance of any of the younger sons. The eldest son would be the patriarch and the executor of the inheritance. So the interrupting brother, he wants his inheritance divided so that he will have more. But that will reduce the number of farmable land of the family as a whole. It sounds as if the elder brother wants to keep the situation as his father intended, with all the brothers working the land and supporting their families with it. Currently, the whole family has enough to live off of, but the younger brother wants more. The younger brother is consumed with the inheritance and less concerned with the welfare of his brothers and their families. The man's demand of Jesus essentially would involve shutting out his entire family for his own desire to have more. And the greed mentioned before the parable begins would have been a very real problem in a limited good society of first century Palestine. Wealth, as it is today, is finite. If you don't want, if you don't have it, you want it. If you do have it, you want more. But at what cost? Jesus' response to the man seems rather compassionate. He doesn't smite him or call him cursed, 
But Jesus tells him a story, a parable. It's a parable not even to really put him in his place, but a story to illuminate what he is missing, what life could be like, contrasted to what life is like in his current state. A parable is a reference. It references a symbol. In Luke's Gospel, the parables of Jesus references the kingdom. The everyday is laid down beside the kingdom of God. With that in mind, Jesus tells a parable of a rich farmer who had land that brought forth plentiful crops. The Greek word for the man's land here suggests extensive land holdings. His crop would be bountiful to begin with, and here he has an extraordinarily good year. From the beginning, we can see that the parable is going to be about wealth and how it is handled. The first words out of the man's mouth are to himself. What shall I do? I have nowhere to put my crops. He immediately thinks of himself. The rich farmer would naturally have lots of storage space, but the fact that he needs to tear down the existing ones signifies a huge harvest, one that cannot be contained. This indicates something unusual. It also implies God's blessing and references two similar blessings in Israel's history. The first was Joseph storing the surplus grain of the seven years of abundance in preparation of the seven years coming of famine. So storing up was a good thing, and the Pharaoh placed Joseph in charge of Egypt. And when the famine did come, the people were fed. The second blessing was with Joseph was with Moses and the Israelites while wandering in the desert. On the sixth day, the people would gather twice as much manna, knowing they would find nothing on the Sabbath. This harvest is God's miracle, and therefore much is demanded of the farmer. A surplus also foreshadows a barren future. Storing up for the future is not a bad thing, but such wealth is intended to serve <clears throat> a public need and demands social responsibility. When the rich farmer decides to build granaries, we may be led to believe he's preparing to care for his people, but he includes only one. The story becomes a soliloquy, a self-dialogue. Even the narrator disappears. The farmer seemingly controls the story. He negates the narrator. He negates his people. He negates God for his own benefit. This man is no Joseph. What is missing from the rich farmer is people. Where are his people, his kinfolk? He is cutting himself off from his community for which the blessing was intended. He could be included in that community. And when all seems good and right in the rich farmer's world, he says to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, drink. Eat, drink, be merry. Now, whenever we have seen this, these words or similar words spoken in the Bible, it always signaled death. The man has unwittingly foreshadowed his own approaching death, all the while believing he will live lavishly many years off his hoarded wealth. It is at this point that God enters into the story by saying, Fool, on this night your life will be demanded of you. It may seem as if this is the first time God makes himself known, but his presence has been noted in the beginning with the miracle harvest. The man must now acknowledge it. 
And even though the rich farmer seems as if he is someone we should revile, God simply calls him a fool. It really could be worse. He doesn't get swallowed by a big fish or turned into a pillar of salt or washed away by a flood. He's simply called a fool. And he doesn't even die by God's hand. Some commentators point out that the wording in the original Greek implies that the man dies of natural causes. He dies in his sleep. I know if I could order up my own death, I would choose death by sleep easily. God doesn't come to end the farmer's world. God comes to hold the man's hand so he doesn't die alone. God comes to restore balance. As James Allison said in his sermon here earlier this summer, this new Yahweh of the gospel is rather disappointing when it comes to wrath. Jesus' God identifies with the rich folk as well as the common folk of all kinds and is in solidarity with them all. When God asked the rich farmer the question, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The man gives no answer. Perhaps because the answer would have been so clear. The man will die. The people will honor him in a proper burial. And only we know his true intentions. But when the people find his storehouses full, they assume the rich farmer was intending to share it with the community in lean times. They may even consider him a hero. They will find the storehouses full. The miracle is still there, given to the people for whom it was intended and needed to be managed. Mismanaged or not, the blessing of God is still there. It still prevails. The harvest is bountiful grace, and the consequence for our missteps is not wrath, but more grace. Luke's Gospel opens with three accounts of an angel appearing to Zechariah, Mary, and the shepherds. The words the angel speaks to each are, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. You have found favor with God. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The book of Luke ends with Jesus appearing to the disciples, saying, Do not be afraid. I am with you. And right in the middle is a parable promising God's solidarity with creation, holding our hand and blessing us with compassion and grace. Thanks be to God.